Hello my dear friends and welcome back to Garda Goes Geek. On today's episode, another Halloween special as I look at a film that left a very strong impression in my mind the first time I watched it. It's one I've found myself still thinking about years later after I first watched it. Um, and I've, I've only just rewatched it again, and so I really want to talk about just how much this film plays with with tropes um, of horror, of a particular type of horror, and due to its, its similarities to the original Evil Dead, I thought now was a good time to look at it, as well as the fact that it's almost ten years old now, and that is The Cabin in the Woods. Now, I want to say that while horror quite often gets lumped in with genre fiction as part of geek culture, um, you know, sci-fi, fantasy and horror, they're all kind of seen as like the niches of speculative fiction. They're not as popular as things like crime, which everyone focuses on. Everyone, you know, crime is more of a mainstream genre, um, whereas... Science fiction, horror, and fantasy are seen as more niche, more of a subculture. And you see this um, at conventions. You know, you get horror conventions in the same way that you have science fiction or fantasy conventions. And, you know, you see this with cosplayers who will play characters from horrors whether animated or live action, because, of course, there's a whole range of anime horror films. Um, you know, some, like the works of um, Junji Ito, are very, very popular. Um, now, I'll admit, while I was always interested in science fiction, and I've always had a, a passing interest in fantasy, um, despite it not being my main passion, not as much as science fiction. Horror is one I've always been on the fence about, I should say. It's not that I don't like horror as a genre. I do. I think there's some very, very good horrors. And I think there are... There are some franchises within horror that are just... You know... Uh, you know, not just franchises, films, that are peaks of the genre... They are the best the genre can do, and they are worth watching by anyone. But saying that, I also have not seen as much horror as I should have. And I know this. You know, there's plenty of horror that I know not from first-hand accounts, not from watching the films but from how much they've been parodied and referenced in pop culture. You know, a good a good example of this is pretty much anything that has been in The Simpsons' Treehouse of Horrors. I loved the Treehouse of Horrors series because they poked fun at horror while also doing horror as a straight genre. Like, some of those Treehouse of Horrors, you know, they are, they are loving parodies. They are very much aware of what they are 
what they are doing and what they are trying to be. And for the most part, they do a fantastic job. Um, but it means that there's plenty of great horror classics, by which I mean things like The Exorcist or um, The Omen, which I haven't seen the original films. I've instead seen how they have been parodied and referenced across pop culture in things like The Simpsons. Same is true with a lot of Stephen King's works. I haven't read a lot of Stephen King. What I have read, I've really enjoyed. Um, don't get me wrong, for the most part. Um, I found it a bit harder to get into Misery as a novel um, than I did as a film. Um, and I think some of Stephen King's prose, sometimes he gets in his own way. Um, you know, he, he prose can meander a bit. But also I know that Stephen King and adaptation is one where he's kind of struggled. He's not particularly fond of a lot of his own adaptations, um, despite how influential they as horror films have gone on to be. Like, for example, The Shining, which, again, I haven't seen. I'm aware of. Everything I'm aware of about The Shining comes from pop culture. It doesn't come from reading the novel or watching the film. But saying that, I do think horror is a good genre, and I think that there's a lot of good things in it, and there's a lot of different types of horror which can be fascinating. You know, there's monster horror, there's slasher horror. You know, there's a lot of different, you know, psychological horror. There's so many different ways that the things in horror can be used to but to play with an audience and to play with their expectations. And I think that is what's key to horror. Horror is all about finding a way to strip what the audience is comfortable with away and present something different and new and unique. And this is where we come to Cabin in the Woods. Cabin in the Woods is, it was written by Drew Goddard and Joss Whedon. And just as a note, I've covered my thoughts on Joss Whedon and their actions as a person. I do not wish my praise of their writing or their work to be a praise of them themselves. They have done some horrible things, been accused of some very horrible things, and they deserve to be punished for that. However, I do admire several things about the person's writing. And it becomes an issue of art versus artist, because, like, for example, I, was, I watched the director's commentary for Cabin in the Woods recently. Uh, in the director's commentary, he is constantly making reference to the main actress in this and how pretty she is and how good-looking she is. And it's very uncomfortable, um, you know, the, the praise he's lavishing on uh, Kristen Connolly in the, in the director's commentary um, over her physical attributes when you realise the things that he has been accused of by women who worked on Buffy. And so, yeah, that's, that's a bit uncomfortable. So, like I said, don't, don't ever take me praising this film and the th th things that this film does well 
as praise of him as a person. It's not. At all. But yes, I covered that in my Firefly review. I'm not going to go over it too much again here. That said, this film was, like I said, written by the two of them. Um, they both come off of projects that had failed recently. They wanted to write something they were passionate about. They sat down, wrote this over a weekend, um, divvied it up between them, and then eventually went out to, to make it, produce it. And... From everything I have been told, um, the people making this didn't see any of the, the sort of things that Joss Whedon has been accused of. Um, but this film is, is good. <laughs> it is very good. It does a lot of... It. The thing with horror is... This was made in 2009. By 2009, the horror genre had become a very different beast to what it used to be. Um, you had the rise of the sort of the torture porn films, things like Saw, Hostel, um, you know, being these, these grotesque horrors um, where people would be you know, eviscerated graphically on screen. And you had, oh, some... I saw the original Saw trilogy. Um, there are parts of that third film that were hard for me to watch. Um, you know, I'm not, like I said in my Evil Dead review, I'm not much of... I'm a huge fan of splatter. Um, but when it's done in a ridiculous way, when it's done in a really realistic way, it can make you cringe. Um... But, you know, horror as a genre has been around a long time. There's, there's certain expectations that people have when they go to a horror film. Um, you know, whether it's a supernatural horror film, whether it's a, a slasher horror film, whether it's a zombie horror film, whether it's a monster horror film. People have certain expectations of what they're going to get when they watch these movies. And Cabin in the Woods, to me, takes that, that accurate piece of horror in that it plays with your expectations and subverts them. But in a way that also means it's not really a horror film at all. And that was something I really enjoyed. And it is the one thing um, about this film that plays so much on my mind. Like I said... I first watched this in 2013. It was filmed in 2009. Um, it was filmed under MGM. MGM went bankrupt, and it was one of the films that kind of got lost in the shuffle um, until Lionsgate saw it and released it in 2012. Um, in fact, I think it even demoed at a film festival in 2011, so before then. And... Like I said, I really enjoy it. I think it plays with so much of what the horror genre is that it becomes something so unique and so cool. But that also means that I can't talk about it without discussing spoilers. So, this is my warning to you. If you want to see 
a very different type of horror film. One that will, if you are a fan of horror, will play with everything you love about horror, about the genre, and do it in a very interesting way, in a way that you might not expect, and how it will, you know, in a film that will keep you guessing right up until the end about where this is all going and what can happen, then I highly recommend Cabin in the Woods if you haven't seen it. Alright? If you have seen it, then I'm going to discuss now why I like it. So, this is your final warning. If anything I've said has piqued your interest at this point, stop this podcast, go and watch the film, and then come back here and listen to the rest. Okay? Because everything else I have to say about this movie involves a spoiler okay and i recommend going into this film as blind as you can possibly be for maximum enjoyment okay see you on the other side right so if you've stuck with me to this point i am assuming that you are okay with being spoiled because i'm going to spoil this movie um for me what works about cabin in the woods is how horror in itself has become a very empty genre um, by twenty by two thousand the late two thousands when this was made. Um, that's not to say there isn't some very clever horror still being made. There is, um, but there is also a lot of vapid horror. Horror has become almost another. Not quite a blockbuster genre, but another genre where you can just... It's its always been a genre where you can just turn out, churn out sequel after sequel after sequel. You know, it's how films like Friday the 13th and Nightmare on Elm Street and Halloween um, and even Texas Chainsaw Massacre, films that were designed as these quite self-contained horror stories became these huge franchises that have gone on and on and on and <laughs> gone to some cases some very bizarre areas. You know, sure, there are still some very clever sequels out there, but there's also far too many Jason X's or similar films of that ilk. And this is the problem with horror. Um... You can kind of, you know, it's very tropish, very formulaic. Um, you know, you, the characters are all particularly one note so the audience immediately identifies with them and immediately identifies what their role is going to be in the story. Part of the reason why Scream was so lauded um, when it pointed out these horror movie rules across the original trilogy by Wes Craven was because those rules were true they were true of so much of horror that was being made at the time and that in some extent is still being made um cabin in the woods though for me flips a lot of that on its head um for starters the main five characters they are 
presented and treated by the um the organization that is offering them a sacrifice as the whore the athlete um the scholar the fool and the virgin the thing is each of those characters could also fill multiple roles there you know dana is the one being presented as the virgin which she actually scoffs at towards the end of the movie and the reason she scoffs at it is because she recently had an affair with a professor you know a sexual affair with one of her professors a very illicit thing <laughs> you know um the whore jules um played by anna hutchison who is great in this i i don't know what else she's in but she's she's brilliant in this and clearly having so much fun um apparently the the commentary reflects that as well apparently she was just having the time of her life on this movie and was perfectly down for anything they decided to do um i know her from power rangers she played the yellow ranger in uh, power rangers jungle fury which is one of one of the more underrated seasons for me um but she's great in this um and she you know she is shown to be smarter than she lets on and you know yes she's interested in her boyfriend but i wouldn't say she's a whore necessarily um you know at least if anything that presents that way you have to wonder how much of it is down to the psycho conditioning and the you know the um everything that's being pumped into them i mean she's a pre-med student you know she's she's a pre-med college student she's got bound to be clever um chris hemsworth as kurt the you know the football jock he's a sociology major um and he is shown to be smart he guides dana quite early on in the in the movie about their different textbooks um you know jesse uh it's not jesse jesse williams is the actor um as holden um he is the football teammate he's designated as the scholar but you know and he shows that he is intelligent you know he knows latin for example but he's also the football uh a football team member so he is just as much of a, a a jock and an athlete as kurt is he's also um he's also again shown to be a bit more virginal i suppose he's not quite the whore um you know that some of the others are he shows nervousness and concern about Dana, yes, he's you know when and she's in the two way glass, um, or the two way painting window thing, um, Marty as well also could easily fit the Virgin, and some of the others could fit the Fool at certain points, you know, um, Jules especially could fit the Fool quite well, um, 
and even even Marty himself, the the stoner, he's shown to have some intelligence. Like it's implied, he built that bong mug thing himself, uh, which, by the way, was one of the most single most expensive props in this movie. Uh, it was made for five thousand dollars, which is a great little um, tidbit. So obviously they're playing with the tropes of these different characters because they none of them completely fit these archetypes and that's by design and um you know drew goddard actually said that they had a hell of a time casting these these kids because a lot of them would play to the stereotype and really kind of phone it in without getting the the layer underneath And so I think, yeah, they've, they've done a good job here. Um, but then the the facility is the other aspect of this, where you have uh, Richard Jenkins and Bradley Whitford as uh, Citizen and Hadley, um, along with Amy Acker as Lynn, the facility tech, and um, Brian White as Truman, the con- control and security officer. They are they are again playing with tropes when you come into this film that first scene features them and it is done by design it is done to show you to make you think that you're in the wrong film but then it peppers in this whole idea of there's events happening all over the world and they're failing and then you get a whole subplot and the the faith around it and the the sort of worship of these these ancient ones and everything they could spell that they could doom humanity and i love it the whole you know it's it's the film plays with so much of the genre conventions of modern horror but then the whole concept of the ancient ones goes back to sort of you know the whole idea of the a lot of the origins of horror things like the lovecraft mythos um but also you know being you know fearful of those in power in a sort of 1984 way as well which is a um a more modern take on horror but then also you know the people in power have always been criticized as part of horror night of the living dead did that as well um and that works so well for me and then of course you combine that with all the straight up references and homages to horror um things such as the the harbinger um you know the sort of the gatekeeper warning them away and how they have to transgress um in order to be punished um by their gods how um you know how you have all these different creatures you know you have the the redneck torture family you have zombies you have um the giant snake monster the giant um octopus the vampire bats the unicorn the sugar plum fairy, the cenobite style creature, um, 
the, even the killer clown, it all makes me laugh in a way that is just amazing. Just having everything from horror, from myths and folklore, and explaining that this is where our nightmares come from because these things are real and they are used to torment us and to cause sacrifices. And, you know, the third act where they are let loose in the facility and they start tearing through people, you know, everything from, you know, a whirring power tool robot um, to an angry molesting tree to a ghost to, you know, even a flying purple people eater at one point. Yeah, makes me chuckle. And and some things we don't even see in full. Like there's there's one scene that played on my mind, which is where Dana and Marty come out of their hiding place and the corridor's just drenched in blood. And there's that girl at the end of the corridor walking around the corner, chasing someone who is crawling away, grievously wounded, leaving a blood trail across the floor. And we never see that girl from the front. And it's not the sugar plum fairy that was in the cages earlier. It's another girl in a white dress with long brown hair and, you know, brown or black hair. And it's similar, I suppose, to the the creature from Ring or the Grudge, but they were already kind of referenced with the uh, spirit in the Japanese um, story. Um, and so... Yeah, and, and we, we don't see what she is. We don't see how she kills. And that really plays on my mind. I'm like, who is she? What What's her, what's her story? There's so much you could mine from this uh, for potential stories. But then at the same time, the ending of the film makes that completely impossible. Um, in a way that I absolutely unashamedly love <laughs> you know it is such a bold choice to have the film just end with everyone dying um and i love it <laughs> i absolutely love it i mean there's so many people that get killed in this anyway like you know it starts as a slasher with these five kids but this film's actual death toll on the screen is 69, which is a large amount of kills, a large amount of very gory kills. And, you know, the scenes where the lift doors open and all those security officers are just torn apart. And then the the blood that is everywhere in that corridor is just amazing. <laughs> and seeing them tear through the facility staff you know, all these people who get exactly what's coming to them. And there's a very good dichotomy at play um, for a lot of this, where you kind of want both sides to be successful. You're invested in both of them. You're aware that what the facility is doing is evil, but they clearly believe in it. And... It's like the mad dash, dash that they do to blow the tunnel. You kind of want them to blow the tunnel because it keeps the kids there and keeps the movie going. 
even though you know you shouldn't want this to happen, you want the kids to get away at the same time. Very clever. Um, and works really well for me. Um, and, yeah, the, the monsters are great. I mean, there's a werewolf, the, the ghost, the spirits, and, you know, like I said, all these people being torn apart. There's even a reaver in the background because Joss Whedon was involved. There's a reaver at one point from Firefly running around. Um, there's also, because of a planned uh, crossover, um, in the scene of all the cages moving around, all the cells, several of the special infected from the video game Left for Dead are present in some of the cages. Like, you can explicitly see the boomer and the tank and, I believe, the witch quite easily and this is because uh, up until MGM went bankrupt they were planning to do a tie-in map with Left 4 Dead as promotion for the film um, I'm not sure how that would have worked because obviously you know it would have spoiled quite a lot of the movie um, because yeah I really do think this is a film that that you do need to see blind or as blind as you possibly can um but yeah i just think it's very interesting you know this is this is a very old school horror movie in a lot of ways while also being a very new horror movie in a lot of ways as well in that it plays with conventions and twists things on the head but to the point where it's also not really a horror movie like i said in my intro this is a horror movie but it's not a horror movie you know it's a it was a 15 certificate here in the uk it's not an 18 it's not an, a hardcore horror and you compare it to its contemporaries like i said things like saw and hostel the the real sort of torture porn movies that were just trying to make things uncomfortable, you know, trying to be as uncomfortable and gross as possible. Whereas this, I mean, this doesn't hide away from the, the buckets of, of fake blood and, you know, claret flying everywhere. But at the same time, it's, it's doing something more interesting with it. Or at least it seems to be trying to. You know, it is referencing so much old horror in a way that is just a love letter to it. You know, the cell, the, the cellar door flips open in the exact same way as the one in Evil Dead. You know, and then they go into the cellar and they're surrounded by all these items that could call any of their, you know, potential killers. You know, even the mermen. And the merman scene, by the way, where Bradley Whitford's character Hadley gets killed by the merman. Absolutely fantastic. And, you know, this has references to old horror as well. Like, um, the director character, played by Sigourney Weaver at the end, who, by the way, was apparently so excited to be working with a werewolf. Um, like, she was apparently really giddy about it like wanted to have lunch with the person having playing the werewolf she was really excited about the fact she was going to get killed with an axe in her head um you know she's um 
she was clearly having a ton of fun. But like, as well as her, I mean, her original role, they they originally wanted to get Bruce Campbell um, to play the role, um, but he was unavailable due to scheduling conflicts. And he would have been good in this. I do think Sigourney Weaver works better for the character as presented in the film. Um, but that's just because... I've never seen Bruce Campbell play a role that deadpan. But I'm sure they could have tweaked the writing to make it to do otherwise. Uh, apparently, Jamie Lee Curtis was also considered, but uh, Sigourney Weaver won out. Um, but as well as as well as well her, um, Heather Lagenkamp was also involved in this movie. She's the actress who played Nancy in A Nightmare on Elm Street. Um, she was one of the members of the makeup crew. Uh, and that is because her husband is a uh, special effects artist. And so she's involved in this film working on the makeup. Sigourney Weaver as well had also previously worked with Joss Whedon on um, Alien Resurrection as well, um, which he wrote. So um, he jokes in the... Um, in the director's commentary that she was one of the good things about it and yeah, how many other people could say that i'd argue ron perlman um yeah i'm being harsh on alien resurrection I, you can see in my alien episode I, I didn't hate it it's it's rough but i don't hate it i'd also say this movie has a very very good three-act structure as well i've also i've already spoken about how the third movie uh sorry the third act with all the monsters growing loose in the facility and the the things that happen there work really well. Um, the second act is obviously um, after they're attacked by the Buckner family and you get the movie's first kill, which doesn't happen until 44 minutes in. Um, but I'd say the first act is probably everything towards getting them to the cabin and realising just how involved the facility is going to be. A lot of the facility scenes were apparently planned to be cut, and I am glad they were not. Um, there is so much there that I think is integral to showing why we should care about it. Um, and there's even some, some great hints of things later on, like when they release the blood on the fool statue. Um, you know, the the ground rumbles and it's because the ancient ones know that Marty isn't actually dead. So that's pretty cool. Um, but yeah, like I said, this was a movie that ever since I watched it just played in my mind as something that I kept thinking about. And it's because I just really like the concept of it. The whole idea that these these ancient ones, these ancient gods, have to be kept satiated with the blood of innocence. And that, you know, these rituals have to happen all around the world. Every year, it's implied. And of course, then the, the organisations within human society that would spring up to ensure that this actually happens, to ensure that these sacrifices go ahead. And then what could happen if the sacrifices go wrong? You know, the whole idea that 
you know, th- this film is a confluence where every sacrifice fails one year. You know, it's down to Japan and America. And, you know, Hadley even says that that's happened before. You know, but nothing bad has ever happened since 1998. By the way, the same year that Halloween H2O was released, where the final girl actually does kill Michael Myers. So... Yeah, it's the it's the idea of the idea of that that sort of existential horror and how that plays into it, and then and then I wonder of like the origins of these creatures, like did the old ones create them? Did humans create them? Where did they come from? You know who keeps them safe? How are some of them magical while some of them are physical? You know, the the merman, for example, is a very physical monster. The giant snake is a physical monster. But some of them are, like, ripped straight from mythology. Things like the Huron, um, the, the Native American um, man. Um, you know, they are ripped from... Ripped from myth. From mythology. And it's like, are all those things in the mythology real? All these things, all these dark threats that humanity has ever had um you know the idea that they're all real they're all out there somewhere and that they prey on the young because they have to to keep us all safe and then the idea of is that peace worth it you know which is becomes the final question of the whole film you know and that's a very, you know, they're being punished for being young. And it's a very shades of grey debate. Like, do the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few? Um, you know, to paraphrase Star Trek, to quote Star Trek, in fact. You know, to the, the kids in this movie, they don't see that. People are worth things. Not just everyone, but all people they're worth living even at the to the effect that it destroys the world but yeah I like I said I can't praise this movie enough I know it's not a perfect horror movie I know it's not a groundbreaking game changing movie but for me, there is so much of the formulaic aspects of horror that this film commented on and turned on in their head that, to me, it works so well. And like I said, so much of it plays on my head as, you know, the whole that, that whole world is one that I wish... I could see more of. I understand there will probably never ever be a sequel to this movie. Probably never even a prequel either. But it's like I'd like to see more of this universe in some form because I think it's a very interesting concept and a very rich concept. Um, And the film covers just enough that it needs to 
to leave you hungry for more. But unlike a lot of other horror movies where it's like, you don't need to add more to it. Because to make a sequel, you just have to add more and add more and more complex stuff. Whereas this one, you don't need to do that. You just need to pull at some of the threads and see where they lead. And I like that. And I think it would have made a good franchise. I get why it can't, but it would have made a good franchise. So, yeah. I like this film. It's one of my favourites. And if you've watched it for the first time and you've listened to this podcast, I hope you enjoy it as well. So, that concludes my Halloween offerings for another year. I've really enjoyed talking about Cabin in the Woods. It's one of my favourites. I enjoyed talking about the Evil Dead films as well, don't get me wrong. Uh, I very much enjoyed watching them. Um, But Cabin in the Woods is one I will sing the praises of to um, anyone who will listen. I, I really enjoy it. And like I said, it plays on my mind to the point that I regularly find myself thinking about it and going, that's a cool story. Now, I'm probably going to be doing more specials like this on the podcast going forward rather than making the Halloween episodes part of the regular rotation like the George Romero one was last year. Um... So expect perhaps another little special around Christmas time. Perhaps. I may have already picked out what I'm going to be talking about. And it's very fun. Um, For the next part of the season, I am working on three episodes. Which I am hoping to get out to you very, very soon. Until then, I hope you have a great Halloween enjoy all the candy and I hope you have a wonderful holiday bye for now thank you my friends for once again joining me on Gardo Goes Geek your continued support for this podcast means the absolute world to me And I am grateful for every single one of you who stays and listens to one of my episodes. It means the absolute world. Now, if you would like to engage more with me or the podcast, we have a Discord community, small but growing. And and we now have commissions open on Ko-Fi. So if there's a topic you would like to see me cover, you can pay me to cover it. All funds will be used for legal purchase of the relevant items where I do not have them. Have a look on the link tree for more information. Until next time, look after yourselves.